and welcome to Media Evil, a medieval pop culture podcast where we talk about how medieval and medieval-inspired movies, TV, and books depict the medieval world. What do they get right? What do they get wrong? And what do they tell us about how modern people see the medieval past? I'm Sarah Ift-Decker, a medieval historian, and today I'm joined by returning guest Ben Paul to discuss 2022 novel, sorry, we've got a book today, Lapvona by Otessa Moschweg. So Ben, welcome. Thanks for coming. Hi, it's nice to be here again. Why don't you tell the listeners uh, a little bit about yourself in case that they have not listened to your previous appearances and about why you wanted to talk about this particular book. So a little about myself. Uh, I listen to a lot of podcasts these days, have a lot of time to watch movies and read books. I'm lucky in that sense because I'm a teacher who's currently out of work. But uh, why this book? Well, last year... I was struggling a bit. I've been reading nonfiction for a long time, biographies and history and so mm-hmm. on. And I found myself struggling with a very good book about Orson Welles. And so I went to a Facebook group I was in at the time that we're both a member of. And I said, hey, guys, what, what fiction should I read? And I got about 200 replies, which was nice. <laughs> I took a recommendation of Sarah's, actually, which was Olga Tokarczuk. I think difficult to pronounce. Oh, Yes. And one of the recommendations was to read Otessa Moschweg, and I checked out, what's it called? I've got it here. Homesick for Another World, which is a collection of short stories. And mm. it was it's a weirdly misanthropic, kind of unpleasant, almost brutal, but very, very funny, like character studies mm-hmm. that I found a bit of a breath of fresh air. And then I went to look what else she'd done. And people talk highly of Eileen and my year of rest and recovery. But at that time, her most recent book was La Vona. And I got that and I read it on a holiday. Well, it's obviously about medieval times, Mm -hmm. which is why I wanted to talk about it. But, um, well, I've got a lot to say about it. I'm not a misanthropic person, like, at all. (laughs) But in the same way that... I really like humor about social transgressions. I'm a very polite Mm -hmm. person. But for example, I love watching Kobe Enthusiasm, um, Uh which is all about messing with the rules of how you interact with people. And in the same way, I really enjoy misanthropy done well. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And uh, she doesn't always, you know, it's not always pleasant to read and she's not a perfect author or anything. But um, I really appreciate her. And that sounds very... Uh, wishy-washy but I really appreciate that kind of voice in my life Mm -hmm. yeah this is the first of her novels that I've read Uh, I actually am a fairly misanthropic person (laughs) and uh, so I appreciated that because it was I found it very interesting because as we'll talk about it is very much in some ways you know drawing on this kind of ideas of a particularly kind of brutal medieval past but I also find it interesting in some ways in that uh, it seems at least from the kind of brief descriptions that I glanced at of her other work it seems like that might just kind of be her vibe in terms of how she depicts uh, all historical uh, er- or present eras yes so yeah yeah exactly when I was a young man from for my sins you know I enjoyed reading Bukowski like a lot of like young mm-hmm. men he's especially unpleasant in a lot of different ways but I think if you want a window into the mind of an absolute piece of shit you know you can't accept substitutes Mm -hmm. and in the same way if you want a window into the mind of someone who doesn't like people very much then Otessa Mm Moshfeg is is a is a wonderful writer for that 
Yes, it's it's an interesting novel in that I, I don't always like novels where I find every single character extremely unpleasant. <laughs> and this one I actually did. Yes. Yes, I see that. That just, yeah, something about the authorial voice kind of made, made that work for me. So, uh-huh. yeah. yeah, no, I'm glad you enjoyed it. Brief background. So this is a quite new novel published in 2022. It is, I believe, her fourth full-length novel, but she also has a novella and the book of short stories that you mentioned. Mm-hmm. And seems to have been relatively successful. It uh, was a New York Times bestseller. It was on the New Yorker's list of the best books of 2022. Mm-hmm. The reviews I saw seem to be largely positive with the caveat that essentially this book is uh, maybe not for the faint-hearted. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. In terms of that, uh, you know, I will just say in advance, you know, as usual on this podcast, we're going to be spoiling the book. But also just as a warning for anybody who is interested in reading it, it is disturbing and grotesque. There will be, you know, various content warnings, including uh, for sexual assault, including for some quite brutal murders. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. uh, you know, child abuse. Uh, Domestic violence. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, really rough. Yes. With that, uh, let's get into the enumeratio, where we uh, we talk a little bit about the book. And uh, I'm just going to kind of do, I think, a kind of very sort of brief overview of what essentially the kind of premise is, and then we can have a bit more of a sort of freeform conversation. Cool. So the novel takes place in Latvona, which is a fiefdom in an unspecified location or precise time, but a kind of vaguely medieval European setting hints that we've just had a major plague. So vaguely implying kind of around probably the mid 14th century. Makes sense. But we do not have a, it's not rooted in a very kind of particular time and place exactly. Mm-hmm. So we have this town and essentially we see what's going on from the perspective of both the the villagers who are, I believe, universally illiterate and from the perspective, eventually, also of the town's lord. So we start with the figures of uh, of Jude and Merrick. So Merrick is a boy who's born with a physical disability. He has a spinal deformity. And his father, Jude, who is brutally abusive. Yes. And we are told at the outset that his mother uh, died giving birth to him, though we will eventually uh, find that that's not quite what actually happened. Yes. I made a few reference notes in my very sketchy notes here. And for Jude, I've got various headings. And if you don't mind, I'd like to read them out for Jude. Yes. His headings are cruelty, bitterness, lies, self-pity, cannibalism, masturbation, and lambs. Yeah, that that pretty much covers it. He's, uh, <laughs> he's really into the lambs. He likes the lambs significantly more than he likes his son. Yeah. Although I I will go ahead and sort of give it away. We do find that the, you know, rosy story of, as it were, Mm -hmm. death and childbirth is, in fact, uh, way more cheery than the reality, which is essentially that this woman was captured by Jude, repeatedly raped by him, mm-hmm. and um, had, was actually, and then it turns out we also learn, in fact, that uh, Jude is not Merrick's father, that she came to him pregnant after having been sexually assaulted by her brother. Yes. Attempted to abort, was not successful, mm-hmm. and then ultimately, basically, the second he was born, she left which yeah can't blame her on that one 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, speaking of the lies, there's there's kind of lies that Jude tells Marek, but mm-hmm. he, he lies repeatedly to himself. Yes. Like, he convinces himself that the untrue is true. And mm-hmm. I think that really gets at something about the male psyche. Well, you know, we're mm-hmm. all prey to untruth and self-deception, but something particular where you come up with something completely self-aggrandizing or where you're a martyr mm-hmm. is a big part of this and a big part of the reason that he just, he's barely capable of telling any sort of truth. Mm-hmm. And in particular, I would say that, you know, in, in so many of these, these narratives of, uh, you know, of, of, you know, in reality of sexual assaults, mm-hmm. that there's, of course, a very, very different story sometimes than as, to, you know, when we're talking about, you know, a, a kind of heterosexual situation of a man sexually assaulting a woman, yes. that also very often you kind of hear these narratives of this complete different reading of events mm-hmm. that, you know, I... I think, in, at least in some cases, I think the men telling those stories do believe them and have convinced themselves yeah. that that is what happened, regardless of the fact that it's not, you know, very, very possibly not what actually happened, and that yes. there's certainly a kind of very, very different perspective yeah. uh, that the woman is then bringing there. Absolutely, yeah, your Rashomon problem, if you like. Mm-hmm. Or the last duel, though, I... Uh, I hated the last duel. So I heard. So I heard. Very valid critique. <laughs> but here, you know, we we do eventually, right? We we get Agatha's perspective, yes. and uh, in a in a way that I kind of appre- and I appreciated the kind of way that that reveal was uh, was done mm-hmm. actually mm-hmm. in this mm-hmm. that we the way that okay, we kind of realize like oh the the story that he's been telling the lie that he has been telling and that he has convinced his son of that he has convinced himself of is not actually the truth. Absolutely. And we, in fact, have a lot, and I would say, like, lies also are a kind of uh, kind of running theme in a lot of ways in terms of uh, kind of what's going on in this particular town, so that we uh, we also get the perspective of the lord of the town, William, who is a, a kind of vaguely pathetic figure. And we also hear that Lapfona is, you know, not doing particularly well post-plague. It seems like there also is maybe some kind of, you know, environmental-related issue. It seems like crops are not growing particularly well Mm -hmm. uh, in addition to there being a population decline and not much to necessarily attract more people to this area Mm -hmm. we have this kind of increasingly impoverished town and therefore also as a result the increasingly impoverished lord of this town Mm -hmm. who then basically is kind of trying to line his pockets by sending bandits to ransack the town we also hear that every now and then things happen like somebody isn't able to pay their taxes and so they uh have the wells poisoned (laughs) just enough so that like some people get really sick for a few days and then the priest is like oh i guess it's a punishment from god for you not paying your taxes it's a roundabout way yes yeah (laughs) okay so that the the whole kind of se- kind of system of you know feudal obligations on which this town runs is also very much kind of like built on on lies being told by by the lord of this town. Yeah, it's a real sprawling mess that's going on. Yes. Out. Yes. But I will also note just another character that I wanted to make sure to mention that I guess initially our most positive figure in Merrick's life is uh, is Ina, who is this uh, elderly blind woman who began to miraculously lactate, which more on that later, but uh, that she 
has therefore nursed, you know, generations of children in Latvona, I believe, both Jude himself and Merrick. Mm-hmm. And Merrick still goes to her to suckle, occasionally suckles from other places as well. Yeah. <laughs> which she kind of says, which we kind of hear her say, like, you know, that she realizes, like, eh, that's kind of that's problematic up as and a I thing to... Yeah, I shouldn't do that again. For a child who's, yeah. like... 13, I think, at the beginning. Yeah, 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 yeah. She, well, she's not Jude. She she admits it to herself and decides, you know, mm-hmm. I won't let that happen again. She just kind of lets something happen. And I won't mm-hmm. go into details. But yeah, she's like, that can't happen again. Yeah, but she, in a lot of ways, I think, is also the kind of like most, uh, most honest figure. Right. In some ways in this, uh, that I mean, not that she's, you know, she is involved, you know, she was the one who I think actually kind of, you know, was uh, that Agatha went to to try and uh, produce, you know, your yeah. herbs in order to abort the fetus. Sure. That she, you know, has all this kind of, I think she was also the one who then told Agatha later to uh, to go to a nunnery, which is where she uh, ends up for a good chunk of her life. Yeah. Um, so, you know, she's certainly kind of involved in these things, but also seems like she, she at least seems like she's very honest to herself about, uh, you know, who she, about who she is and, you know, what, what her past is. And uh, yeah, Ina's story arc is the one that goes most into some kind of magical realism. Is that what they call yes. it? Yes. Like, yeah. Yeah. Um, yes, it gets very peculiar later on, but we'll come to that, I'm sure. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> The big change that we have in the circumstances at the outset of the novel is that, so uh, Lord William has a son, Jacob. Jacob, unlike either Merrick or for that matter, his father is like a very strapping young man, uh, muscular, (laughs) athletic. He, you know, has like very fancy new boots and always looks very nice. And Merrick sometimes kind of plays or walks with him. Mm -hmm. And then, well... In what may or may not be an accident, pushes him off a cliff and uh, kills him. And uh, I will, I will also note again in terms of this book the you know elements of the grotesque, the elements of this uh, not being for the faint of heart. Yes, there are uh, rather graphic descriptions at various points of the uh, the corpse. Yeah, of, of the this, way his you know, his head was boy. broken open. Yes, uh, quite distressing. There's, there's like a lot of descriptions of an eyeball that are (laughs) noticeable (laughs) unforgettable perhaps yeah 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 i couldn't help it reading the jacob part of the book it's also well there's a couple of things i want to say about jacob but i couldn't imagine i couldn't help imagining a little errol flynn he's basically errol flynn robin hood (laughs) um but as a teenage boy but the thing I found really funny is he kind of comes into the book and you're like, oh, okay, Marek's friend, what's the dynamic here? And mm-hmm. maybe 10 pages later, spoilers, you know, Marek basically pushes him off a cliff and he dies. Right, right. I mean, we, we get very, very little of Jacob, which is right. which is also, I think, really interesting. Uh, and I, I think it's really interesting that you kind of described him, right, as this kind of young Errol Flynn mm-hmm. that we have in some ways this kind of very, very kind of brief inclusion of mm-hmm. the kind of 
you know, a young version, but of somebody who at least kind of aspires to be that kind of sort of medieval hero. Yeah. As you see, and be more kind of, you know, self-consciously and overtly kind of, you know, cheerful, happy Middle Ages, right? Which yeah. Which is, of course, also a myth in its own way. <laughs> but yeah, so the, yeah, the kind of Errol Flynn Robin Hood, the Knights of the Round Table. Yeah. We have this kind of young man who is the sort of representation of that. Uh-huh. And he even, you know, he seems, uh, you know, he kind of talks about, you know, having this kind of sort of attachment uh, to this, you know, young woman, Lisbeth, who's a, a servant in the household on the one hand, that, you know, relationship obviously inherently has, you know, a power dynamic. <laughs> but on the other hand, it's almost like presented as like being a sort of like nice, Chivalric. mutual. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, I, I gotta say, I gotta chip in here. Lisbeth is my favorite character. Just spends a lot of the book just kind of rolling her eyes and putting her hands up in the air. And, like, slumping around, having a crap time. Uh Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah, and also this interesting, in some ways, uh, kind of audience surrogate in a lot of mm-hmm. the scenes uh, in uh, William's household that we'll get to, right? That in some ways that she's, first of all, she's in some ways kind of like a victim of these grotesqueries that we mm-hmm. also are kind of witnessing as an audience. Mm-hmm. But also the person who, you know, is usually, usually non-verbally, usually with like something of an eye roll. Right. But that, you know, she is uh, kind of, you know, commenting on them and kind of seeing to some extent these uh, these people for for what and who they are yeah 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 she's good fun merrick tells jude that he's (laughs) murdered the lord's son basically Mm -hmm. and they take the body to william's household his wife dibra is very upset william (laughs) does not give a shit (laughs) at all well it's not it's it's uh, he just kind of doesn't know what to do when something ostensibly bad has happened he's completely at sea as we say mm-hmm. you know he's he's like oh well to grab the story away from you for a moment he's like what do i do what do i do oh okay i'll adopt Marek. right and i mean because there is this like really interesting line essentially that he it talks about him as being kind of in this constant need of entertainment, that he's mm-hmm. this person who is really kind of fundamentally sort of constantly being being coddled, being entertained. Nobody mm-hmm. is actually really honest with him. And he describes, you know, his, his wife's presumably actually being traumatized and horrified and upset by the death of her son that she presumably loves as like, and as like a vaguely unconvincing and like an insufficiently entertaining performance. Yes. Exactly. I mean, he thinks everything is an entertaining performance. He can't handle grief or reality, really. Uh, Yeah, I was just going to say that, yeah, he's very he's very kind of divorced from reality in this really fundamental way. Uh huh. Which then is also, to some extent, the sort of source of his cruelty, right? That to some extent, he doesn't see these people that he's harming as being real people. Exactly. So that kind of makes it makes it possible for him to to do whatever he wants. But but yes, but he you know proposes this exchange. Uh, I'll take your boy, and you can take mine. Exactly. And yeah, adopts Merrick and uh, sends Jude to um, bury. I think I think Jude ends up basically just kind of putting him back where he found him. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think that's what happens. Yeah, very odd. Uh, there's a lot of weird allegorical stuff going on in here. Yes. So we'll we'll come to that. But yeah, she was writing it during the pandemic. So I'm mm-hmm. sure we'll come back to it. But it's very freighted with uh, indifference in the face of tragedy and death. 
Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And very much, uh, you know, especially as we kind of get into the famine that then plagues mm -hmm. the village. And, you know, and this is also very, you know, a kind of interesting also, right, from a medievalism perspective, you know, people often talk about, you know, the, the crisis of the 14th century, mm -hmm. in terms of this kind of period as being, you know, the obviously we most familiar to uh, people is, of course, the Black Death, but that also mm -hmm. there are repeated famines, there are civil wars in some places, right, that uh -huh. it's this period kind of associated with this sort of moment of crisis. Uh -huh. And that's very much kind of the atmosphere, right, for for this novel that this already kind of suffering town is then ends up in this uh, in the grips of this truly kind of horrific famine, uh, all yeah. the lambs die. Uh -huh. Yeah. Oh, also interesting that uh, the people of Latvona don't eat meat. Right, for religious reasons. Yes. Yeah. Which I will note is is not really anything. I mean, there's it's it, you know it, it's kind of coming out of I suppose the uh, the kind of most the kind of most ascetic of the ascetics occasionally, right? That you uh -huh. uh, kind of see references to them uh, them not consuming meat, but uh, certainly you know within to the extent that one can talk about a kind of like normative medieval Christianity, mm -hmm. you know, that would not be something, uh, you know, it is almost actually kind of akin to what's claimed about the, uh, the Cathar quote, you know, heresy from yeah. a Orthodox Christian perspective that uh, I believe at least the, uh, the Cathar perfecti, the kind of leadership mm -hmm. don't eat meat because they kind of are eschewing that kind of materiality. Oh, okay. Well, the thing is in this uh, medieval Europe, they have potatoes. Yes, they do. <laughs> yes, I, I know. I yes, like ten, it's like ten pages in that there's the first potato, and I think I actually like have like a note where I just like write, write really. <laughs> and yeah, that's uh, this is why, and we'll come to this as well. My, I don't know if there's many of these that you've covered, but I think this is one of the texts that's least about in quotes medieval times that you've yes. probably covered. Because yeah. You know, of course, she knows better than to just chuck potatoes in there as a thing. Right, right. I mean, you know, I've done a lot of kind of medieval inspired fantasy, which, yeah. uh, which you know, similarly, I mean, you know, yeah. I mean, Tolkien has potatoes. Of course. <laughs> Imagine without them. Right. What would what would the, what would the Lord of the Rings be without uh, without the taters? Without taters. <laughs> yes, indeed. Okay, so yeah, that's there as well. And what is it like? On, to go on another tangent, right? Why do we so strongly associate root vegetables with medieval times? That is a good question. I mean, I think it is actually... I think we associate them with, like, impoverished peasantry. Right, okay. <laughs> if you're growing your own food. Right, exactly. That it's I, like I actually wonder if it is a sort of like whole like essentially holdover in terms of something like the Irish, like the you know the so-called Irish potato famine slash right. like British attempt at genocide. Yes, but that you know we kind of picture like the diet of we kind of picture potatoes as central to the diet of the poor. Yes, and so the like impoverished medieval peasant, it kind of makes sense in our head that, uh, you know, they should be consuming potatoes. And turnips. Uh, despite the fact and that... carrots. Yep. Just eating right, carrots right. raw out of the ground. Right. Despite the fact, yes, that, that potatoes, at least, uh, you know, they, they certainly were not consuming uh, since we, we do not have potatoes uh, in, the, in Europe. Uh, that potatoes are, of course, a new world food. <laughs> But yeah, it's uh, the carrots. I think there's like something where even they're like mining, like or not mining, uh, that they're like you know, like that they're like harvesting turnips. Like they're really yeah. into root vegetables in depictions <laughs> of the medieval past. Baldrick's always eating them in Blackadder. 
Right. Just, yeah. And I, and, I mean, maybe it is the kind of literal, like, of the earth element that mm-hmm. we're kind of like, you know, emphasis, you know, the emphasis again, right, that we often have in our minds of the kind of medieval peasantry is tied to the land. Yeah, that digging this food in the that soil. Fundamentally, like, yes, yeah, coming out of the soil in a way that, you know, feels different from yeah. the way that something that grows on a tree comes out of the soil. <laughs> well, maybe there's something there for your Lord of the Rings guest anyway to look into. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So (laughs) yeah. And for me to keep an eye, I'm actually teaching, I'm teaching a food history course, actually, probably in the, in the spring, next spring. So that should be interesting. Yeah. So I've been, (laughs) yeah, had, had a lot of like food history things on the mind recently. Cool. Or, oh, what was the other thing I was going to say? Oh, I was also going to say on the kind of subject of food that mm. we also have that interesting, you know, that we have the people of Lapvona who don't eat meat. And that's one of the kind of interesting disparities or contrasts that we then have between the impoverished peasantry of Lapvona and the elites in the sense of William and his family who do, mm-hmm. in fact, eat meat. And, of course, the village priest. Yes, yes. Who the, are uh, gluttons. Yes. Uh, and the village, the village priest, I will say, is in... Um, in the model that I have seen more than once of the, like, <laughs> what, uh, you know, in the, like, 2010 Robin Hood movie they describe as, like, not very churchy. <laughs> okay. Um, uh, not very churchy priest. Yeah, I kept on imagining Meister Pycelle from Game of Thrones. Yeah, yeah. You know, he's up to, up to, non, up to no good. Yes. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that that was an interesting contrast right, in the terms of the uh, the kind of gluttony and meat consumption of mm-hmm. uh, of the lord and the priest as these as these elites, uh, and also you know that that again that yeah that we have this this priest who's you know kind of not not very religious in a lot of ways, uh-huh. or not not very churchy that he uh, is yeah. more invested in the things of this world, and that to the extent that we kind of see him even kind of bringing anything up. It's right that we kind of see him, you know, in communication with William. And yeah. when he's kind of talking to William, you know, he'll say things like, you know, don't say shit, say excrement. Um, <laughs> it's about the level of his religious instruction. <laughs> yeah. And he's always, he reports to William in funny ways. Like he's, I can't find the thing in the book, but he says something. He, he's constantly tricking people into thinking they did something to displease God or he's mm-hmm. tricking people into praying more, or he's tricking people into confessing this and that, and he's just like, oh, this is my job, just to convince people that, just to deflect, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. From someone who's really to blame. Right, and that, you know, he's very much, you know, he is he is in the service of William and not really in the service of God. <laughs> right, yeah, exactly, yeah. Yeah. They're literally up there, they're up there literally, like, eating till they puke for a laugh. Right. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Which is, of course, especially, you know, grotesque and disturbing once we kind of get into the uh, the famine mm-hmm. that we eventually have emphasized in the town of Lapvona. Mm-hmm. Which also then, uh, well, you mentioned cannibalism as one of the uh, fun uh, terms that we can associate with the figure of Jude that uh, this uh, guy, you know, could, couldn't handle eating the lambs. Yes. Waited for the lambs to die and then buried them. Yes. Uh, of course, yes. and then they were picked clean, and the ram was carried off by the villagers. Yes, yeah, he's not popular. No, <laughs> but there is this, uh, you know, elderly blind man who uh-huh. dies, mm-hmm. and uh, he he takes him to to Ina and uh, butchers him. Uh huh. Yeah. Yeah. 
another kind of, you know, I've seen and read things that have been grotesque. I must have seen a movie where eyes popped out or where cannibalism was taking place. But she has a talent for writing about cooking a human hand and eating it in a way yes she does brings that kind of lowers the bar to new lows yes. the kind of grossness like starting with the thumb and so on it's yes yeah it's tough I mean, and really, really engaging with the grotesqueness of cannibalism. Um, I mean, in, in, with a contrast to being that one of the things that I think is uh, disturbing in a different way. Uh, I don't know if you <clears throat> if you've ever seen the uh, the TV show Hannibal. No, I've never seen a TV show. So I highly recommend it. But one of the things that I think is sort of fascinating about it is that they really have Hannibal as like a gourmet chef, and they brought right. in uh, food consultants, you know, professional chefs okay. who, you know supervise the like presentation and like cooking and plating scenes (laughs) and one of the things that is like disturbing from that perspective is that it kind of divorces you in some ways because you know you know that it's people but like you watch and you're like that looks really good yeah Yeah. damn Hannibal yeah, and so and this is the other way of you know going very disturbing with depicting cannibalism is really engaging with with the grotesqueness as opposed to uh, being in the uh-huh. kind of like mind of this like gourmand serial killer who thinks it's very tasty. Yeah, but yes, yeah, so yeah, we have the like very intense description. We also have like Jude uh, vomiting up a finger at some point. Yes, here I have found described. some of the text. Klim is the elderly blind man who's ended yes. up on Ina's fire. Jude put Klim's thumb in her mouth. Put Klim's thumb in Ina's mouth. Ina sucked it and chewed it. Jude watched. After a moment, she seemed to gain strength and could lift her arms like broken twigs. She pulled Klim's hand away, ripping off the flesh of the thumb with her teeth. She chewed the flesh and swallowed and sighed. Then she chewed the flesh of his palm. Uh, yeah. Yep, that we are, we are really, you know, the novel really makes us sit with, like, cannibalism. The bits you eat. Yep. Yeah. Yep. (laughs) And especially also, I think, like, very significantly, right, that it, like, is, I mean, that it's a hand, right, in terms of, like, it's, okay, if you're eating, say, I don't know, organ meat, as as is commonly consumed on Hannibal, or I don't know, even like, you know, some sort of like piece of like, I don't know, a human like chest or something, Uh, you know, (laughs) you could see that, you know, you can kind of cook it and it's no longer sort of recognizably human. Um, (laughs) Presumably. Yeah, but the thumb is, of course, the defining human thing. Right. Yeah, so the really heavy, like, focus on, like, yeah, the thumb as, you know, being it, right, as as you said, right, being the kind of defining feature of, like, physically speaking, kind of what makes us human, what makes us different from any other mammal. We're very much kind of sitting with, like, we can't get away from the fact that, you know, this is (laughs) a human that we are consuming. Yeah, and starting with the thumb. Yes, starting with the thumb. (laughs) Good times. I mean, and even, you know, the finger is certainly, you know, even like it, you know, certainly uh, distinguish that even, you know, distinguishes us from, uh, you know, from most, if not, uh, if not quite all <laughs> mammals. Uh, but again, just very much like where yeah. we're not avoiding the humanity of, uh, no, this, of course. this body that is being consumed. 
We also get a lot of the sense of the also kind of grotesquerie and cruelty on the kind of everyday level in William's household. Uh, Lisbeth in particular is the constant victim of that. You know, mm-hmm. things like there's this kind of like game that they play with with like throwing grapes at her. And, you know, at some point, you know, Merrick is instructed to stick a grape in his anus and then throw mm-hmm. it at Lisbeth and she has to eat it. Yeah. Yeah. It's ridiculous. It has elements, doesn't it, of like the kind of fart humor of the writers of the time. Am I right? Yeah. Yeah, I do. I do actually find that that element kind of interesting. And I, I don't know the extent to which it's deliberate. I mean, I, I don't know actually reading this novel, the extent to which she did research. I don't know the extent to which it's called fart humor. But there we are. I said it. Oh, right. I mean, yeah, is that a, I was gonna say, yeah, is that a, is that a technical term? Uh, <laughs> Uh, but that that certainly right. is yeah something like there are a lot of like fart jokes in medieval in medieval texts both verbal and yeah visual yeah of course the things that William finds funny I do actually think like are not outside the realm of like what people found funny in the Middle Ages and uh, right. and one of the things I do like right is that people in this aren't prudish. Uh, I was actually just covering something else where I was talking about the fact that like people are kind of oddly prudish. Right. In, in comparison to, you know, the real medieval past where, you know, there's so much fart humor. There's mm-hmm. so many penises, just, co- just like constant <laughs> penises. Uh, <laughs> right. So many people bending double and playing trumpets out of their asses and mm-hmm. things like this. Yeah, that there is something kind of refreshing in some ways about, you know, reading something that engages with that as part of people's (laughs) everyday reality. Right. This kind of bodily humor. Uh Uh-huh. We should also at some point kind of get into the uh, the return of Agatha. Mm Mm-hmm. Which is a lot. So she leaves the nunnery because of the famine, right? Yes. She just kind of leaves because... You know, she hasn't been allowed out for 13 years, but whatever. She's able to yeah. just walk away because everyone's dying and miserable. Right, yeah. And she, you know, I think she really just went there because she didn't really have anywhere to go. And then, yeah, mm-hmm. with, you know, nobody's nobody's keeping her there. Everybody there is starving. And she kind of figures, yeah, might as well see if I can do better elsewhere. Wander off. Very, very quickly after leaving, she runs yeah. into Jude again, this poor, poor woman Aye. who rapes her in what is an extremely graphic scene mm-hmm. in terms of the descriptions that we yeah. get. That stuff is very graphic. It's I don't know how much it's for me to say, but it's not... The description of it isn't problematic. I agree. Yeah, yeah. it's... It's it's upsetting, like, certainly very much, like, you know, trigger yeah. warning if, like, you do not, yes. if you struggle with reading about sexual assault, this is, like, maybe not the book for you. Absolutely not. But I did very much appreciate that it's a description that is, I think, I think actually very self-consciously not at all titillating. Like, it is grotesque. It is upsetting. Yeah, it's brutal. Yes, it, like, very, very much engages with the brutality, with the mm-hmm. horror of mm-hmm. that, even with it actually being from Jude's perspective that it doesn't shy away from that brutality. Yes, yes. Well, again, he's caught up in some kind of weird... Del- he's been driven mad by the famine and everything. Mm-hmm. He thinks she's a ghost, blah, blah, blah. 
because he can't distinguish between reality and his own kind of fantasy uh, that he's created of what happened to her. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah, so that happens. Yes. Um, yeah. So, yeah, so as I said, very, very disturbing scene, but I think that, you know, the 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 way she does it, I, you know, don't have, I very much, you know, no. don't have, don't have a problem with. I mean, I think it is, you know, it's, to the extent uh, that, you know, one can write sexual assault well, I think it is. Sure. Well yeah, yeah. So Agatha then finds herself pregnant uh, now, in fact, presumably with Jude's child, and ends up in uh, in the household of William, where, in part because she is a nun, she is presumed to be uh, pregnant with a virgin birth. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of, in its own way, just kind of deeply grotesque, like, pageantry uh-huh. as they kind of claim this figure, including that William, whose who's wife, oh, what, what actually does kind of happen to her? Oh, does he, oh, he has her killed, doesn't he? Something happens while all this is going on. Uh, Luca, the coachman, yes. is Dibra's secret lover. Or not so secret. Everyone knows about it. Jacob was really his son. Yes. There's a I... lot of like people are not the fathers of the children <laughs> that they are ostensibly the fathers of. And again, that brings back like later medieval stuff like these what would be considered comedy plays at the time. Mm-hmm. That, oh, wait, it's yeah. not his son. She was raped by this guy, so it's his. Right. And so, yeah, he arranges to have Luca killed. Dibra rides off to find Luca, and she, we never see her again. But Ina turns up with yes. part of Dibra's horse's anatomy. Yes, that's right. <laughs> right. I, I don't think we're supposed to anticipate that anything like went particularly well for her. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, Dibra's there when Agatha turns up, but Luca is already gone. Yes. Right. Probably, probably they're both dead. Right. Actually, the section on Dibra and Luca and their history is one part of the book that I found quite touching. Mm-hmm. Weirdly, around uh, page 150 of my copy, like it becomes a very sweet romance between Luca and Dibra. Mm-hmm. She was to him a holy grace, far more powerful than any priest or nun. God lived in her eyes. That was how he had fallen for her, like a religious conversion. Luca had been the one to fetch her from her home in Kaprov and deliver her to William when she was 16. She kissed her parents goodbye and stroke out to the carriage, lifting her bridal veil to look at Luca, who held his hat in his hands. That was the moment. He was tall with broad shoulders, eyes a bit far apart, his jaw strong and angular physical description. I love you, she had said as he held her hand to help her into the carriage. It was that obvious and simple. And it goes on like that for like six pages Mm -hmm. in the middle of this brutality and like disgusting body horror (laughs) and cannibalism Mm -hmm. and stuff. And it's really quite lovely. But then of course these characters are separated. They can't acknowledge Mm -hmm. that Jacob is his son and he has that sadness and I don't know. And very kind of fitting, you know, in the same way that, right, you know, Jacob, the kind of like chivalric knight gets, you know, killed off within 10 pages. Uh, We have this kind of, you know, like also actually sort of like stereotypical courtly love romance in some ways, right? With the, Uh um, you know, kind of pining after the Lord's wife. Yes. And yep, there there goes that uh, (laughs) in not too many pages. (laughs) Right. Exactly. 
that all these kind of like fantasies about these kind of romantic visions of the medieval past are really kind of, you know, intensely undone and kind of turned into more brutality and more grotesquerie. More grotesquerie. Grotesquerie is the word of this book. I keep coming back to it. Yes. I I will say again, uh, this book is uh, is not for the faint of heart, that if you cannot (laughs) handle the grotesque, this is is perhaps not not the book for you. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I won't be telling mum about this episode. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I might actually be telling, uh, I think I think my mom might listen to this episode because she does not want to read the book. Okay. Makes sense. <laughs> so, Good. yes, we, we kind of discussed. And she's like, yeah, no, I'm not going to read that. But thank you for letting me know. <laughs> All right. We've got the, yes, the return of, of Agatha, who, yeah, ends up being farcically and ritually married to William while she has this uh this birth Mm -hmm. she does in fact then uh, actually die in childbirth yes or 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 they kind of starve her after actually yeah that's oh god it's it's been a a couple of months since i read it yeah i can't i can't remember that bit i'm afraid poor agatha i can't remember how she goes right yeah it's um (laughs) And uh, and Ina is, I believe, nursing nursing the child. Oh, of course. Who else but yes, Ina? Yes. Uh, uh, who else but Ina? <laughs> uh, but yes. No. There's this like really disturbed because because uh, because uh, Merrick has kind of pull uh, have kind of figured out that Agatha is his mother because right. there is a very strong physical resemblance, uh-huh. and so he at some point kind of goes to you know to see her and finds this like desiccated corpse that's like still in the. Oh, okay. Yeah, I think I think William just like forgot about her, if I remember right. Uh-huh. He's like, I've got uh-huh. the kid now. Uh, yeah. Okay, leave her there. Right. As this like new Christ-like savior child. Yeah. And yeah, we uh, we end with um, Merrick being uh, just on the verge of throwing that infant child off the uh, the same cliff that he uh, to knock Jacob off of. Exactly. Yeah. Um, it's a hell of a note to end a book on. Right, um, right. A confession, I don't know whether this makes me a bad reader, but when I'm a little bit into a book, a little way into it, I, I often turn to the back page and see what the last line is. Mm-hmm. I don't know why <laughs> that I must do have that. been a doozy of a last paragraph to us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I turned to the back of the book, and I didn't know who Marek was speaking to at the end, but I thought... Oh God, who's he speaking to? <laughs> you know? Yep. Um, you know it can't so, be good. Yeah, it's not going to work out well. But yeah, uh, the book lives up to its. Here we go again. Grotesquery. Uh huh. From the very beginning to the very end. Yes, and with, of course, you know that we also, you know, we have this, you know, child who was presented as this like second Christ, uh-huh. and she therefore also, of course, has to uh, has to die for our sins, I guess. Yeah, yeah, the people in this are very confused. Yes. <laughs> and also, I mean, on, also kind of interestingly just occurred to me, you know, on the, the kind of question of, you know, kind of lineage and connections, you know, we talk about like there is at some point like June and William are allegedly second cousins or something like that. Right. 
then they kind of have these these boys and that Merrick at least kind of has this like, oh, like imagined kind of, or kind of like sense of like, ah, oh, yeah, so that means that like, you know, I am also kin with these people. Yeah. But of course, in fact, neither Merrick nor Jacob are the sons of the uh, the men that they are meant to be the sons of. <laughs> And Merrick refers, of course, at the end to this child as being as being his brother, which yes. he in fact is because they have the the same mother, and there is this sort of emphasis on like that being the only lineage that one can actually kind of count on as accurate. Yes, that's that's it. In fact, uh, the the book opens with a Bandit being captured by the villagers and put in the stocks mm-hmm. before he's hanged. And we learn very casually, it's dropped into the story at the end of, near the end of the book, that the man who died in the stocks or was hanged at the start of the book is Marek's real father. He's Agatha's brother. Right. Coming in search of Agatha, is captured and accused of being a bandit and executed. So it's all kind of, there's a lot of bitter irony in there. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Anything else that we want to make sure to uh, to say about the the book itself in general before uh, getting into some of the elements of uh, of medievalism specifically? Right. Um, well, I I hinted at it earlier, but Ina's a funny figure. Yeah. Uh, to put it lightly, she seems to be immortal. For one mm-hmm. thing, she, uh-huh. her her family all died in a horrible plague, and her house burnt down, but she survived, and she's been blind since she mm-hmm. herself had this plague. But at one point in the story, she turns up with horse's eyes. She's put yep. yes. horse's eyes into her eye sockets and she can now see through the mm-hmm. horse's eyes that makes everything very... Well, everything I imagine looks like a Beastie Boys video, mm-hmm. you know, with the fisheye lens. <laughs> yeah, it's commented on that everything looks misshapen and, and bulging mm-hmm. and, and so on. But nobody seems to comment at any point that, oh, Ina's got horse's eyes. Well, and that she, like, takes them on and, like, she, like, takes them off and puts them back on. Like, she, you know, it's like, 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 they're, like they're, like, contact lenses. <laughs> kind of like something out of Army of Darkness. Uh-huh. Yeah, just pop them in, pop them out. Yep. No, it was, it was like, very much like I was, re- as a person who uh, wears contact lenses, I was reading that. I'm like, this is upsettingly similar to the description of something, like, <laughs> like wearing contact lenses. <laughs> Yeah, everything else in the book is realistic to an extent. It's it's some it's stuff that happens in the human experience. Yes. The horse's eyes stands alone as something that I think will stay with me for the rest of my life. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Imagining this uh medicine woman, wild woman with big bulging brown eyes. Eyes. <laughs> um, and I will, I will say, uh, you know, and that Ina is also a really interesting figure. And I'm going to talk more about this in a minute, but with this kind of like mystical lactation that like in her forties mm-hmm. without having ever been pregnant, she just starts uh, lactating. Mm-hmm. That's something that, uh, as I will discuss momentarily has like real like resonances with medieval sanctity. <laughs> right. Okay. <laughs> Which yeah, is she's... really fascinating. You could imagine to an extent that this is how a lot of people we think of as saints now actually were that they were yeah a weird old lady who lived in the woods and nursed yeah. a generation of babies you know yeah 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 <laughs> 
yeah, no, uh, as I said, I will, I will talk about somebody for whom, like, who, like, there's, like, eerily similar and like and i don't know if that's deliberate or not exactly as i said i'm not clear exactly i mean i i feel like she must have like read something about the kind of mystical lactation thing (laughs) i feel like that can't be entirely coincidental but no no of course so yeah, actually, I think I'd just jump into that first in the uh, the Vera et Falso, what sure. it got right and wrong in terms of uh, medieval, from a medievalism perspective. Yes, that mystical lactation is a common phenomenon among medieval women mystics. Mm-hmm. And this is very much kind of, first of all, connected to the fact that uh, if we kind of go back, uh, that... The electation of Mary is, of course, incredibly significant that we often see and that we see a number of images that are, in fact, very deliberately drawing connections and parallels between Christ's wound, his side wound in particular, which obviously has this kind of salvific meaning in terms of, you know, his Mm -hmm. sacrifice to save humanity and Mary's breasts uh, and her, you know, lactating breasts. Her lactating breasts are often kind of presented as this symbol of her role as a kind of intercessor for the souls of humanity. Mm-hmm. And that we have, you know, we have a lot of de- descriptions or uh, of uh, visual depictions of a nursing infant Christ, which vary in terms of the extent to which they indicate that the person who is responsible for that image has ever seen a woman's breast before. Uh, <laughs> We also have, uh, you know, that like we have all these kind of odd, uh, you know, elements that uh, Bernard of the uh, Saint Bernard of Clairvaux, uh, who is generally a rather dour figure, but his uh, his kind of most fun moment is that he, you know, has this kind of mystical experience with like the milk of the virgin shooting into his eye. (laughs) (laughs) Also often depicted uh, if one wants to look that up yeah yeah i'm sure i've seen some of that and that we have claims about holy women uh typically virgins so generally younger than um than ina but uh, otherwise in a lot of ways quite similar who are mm-hmm. described as miraculously lactating and as nursing their adherence and even managing to uh to cure people uh-huh. through their miraculous lactation I wanted to, in particular, bring in an example, uh, a particular example of a 12th century mystic, St. Christina mm. Mirabilis, or uh, Christina the Astonishing, who was around uh, 1150, approximately to 1224. And uh, her biographer, Thomas of Cantipre, talked about her as, uh, so actually, like, in ways that are, like, very interestingly similar to, you know, like, to the extent that I'm kind of yes. like, oh, like, did you actually read this? Right. <laughs> so she kind of hated people because she thought they smelled like sin. Oh, um, you know, relatable. Right. <laughs> and fled into the wilderness and was living in trees. The account describes how she fed herself and says, without delay, when she turned her eyes to herself, she saw that the dry paps of her breath, of her virginal breasts were dripping sweet milk against the very law of nature. Wondrous thing unheard of in all the centuries since the incomparable mother of God. Using the dripping liquid as food, she was nourished for nine weeks with the milk from her fruitful but virginal breasts. In the meantime, she was being sought by her own people and was found captured and bound as before with iron chains, but in vain. Right. Uh, Why was she captured? They wanted her to stop, like, living in the woods, basically, and, like, come home and be a normal person. Uh, There's a lot of, like, women saints that, like, their families are essentially, like, can you please just be normal for five minutes? (laughs) Um, Right. And she's definitely one of them, that they're like, can can you please stop? (laughs) And she's like, no, I'm going to go live in the woods and survive off the, like, 
miraculous milk from my own breasts. Right. Yeah. You're bringing shame on your family. Yes. Right. <laughs> but yeah, so uh, it really like strikingly similar, as I said. Yeah, yeah, yeah this, is, this is definitely the bit that I, uh, I feel like she must be, be kind of drawing on that. There are definitely other areas that seem, I would say, kind of less coming out of intense research. So we've already mentioned the potatoes. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Of course, we need the potatoes. I also will say the kind of depiction of lordship seemed like something that's kind of more drawing on tropes about medieval lordship than about realities of medieval lordship. Yes. Which is certainly not to say that medieval lordship wasn't exploitative and extractive by its very Mm -hmm. nature, but that it, first of all, I would say tends to be, I guess really is just that like, it's so much more pragmatic than it often gets depicted. That, for example, I mean, uh, one of the things that we see in uh, the context of medieval Catalonia in particular, which is my main area, is uh-huh. that there are these customs that are actually referred to as the uh, the malzusus, so literally the bad customs. Right. Which uh, eventually the, um, you know, there is like a revolt in the 15th century and they are granted, you know, release from some of these. Right. But, and, and one is just like the right to mistreat your peasants. <laughs> But a number of them are actually specifically, you know, extractive and exploitative taxation. Right. And one of the things that is kind of where, you know, that like, for example, if, you know, you you die and you don't make a will, even if you have a clear heir, then, you know, there's like an extra tax that's levied on your heirs. If you, you know, die and you do make a will, but you didn't actually have a child and it's, you know, a nephew that inherits, then there's a right. tax for that. Okay. There's, you know, a tax when you get married, you know, so that there's all sorts of like little like taxes that are kind of added in, but like, it's very pragmatic in a lot of ways. Uh-huh. Yeah. And this is very much a kind of model of lordship that seems like the, he's kind of lost sight of the pragmatism. Like in the (laughs) long run, uh, let's send bandits to just like fuck up this village. Doesn't seem like it's actually going to accomplish what should be the ultimate goal of, could we actually maybe like return to a like semi fruitful landscape? Yeah. 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 Especially and precisely, you know, if we're looking at, a kind of mid 14th century context that, you know, there's, so this is a kind of period where there's a kind of interesting back and forth. And on the one hand, initially we do see some Lords kind of actively attempting to be kind of relatively decent as Lordship goes with the goal of attracting a, of attracting peasants from other Lords lands because of, you know, the fact that we have a much smaller population and there aren't really enough people to work the land. For sure. And then basically, like, because of that happening, then there are also lords who really kind of, like, try to kind of crack down on the not letting you leave bit of, uh, <laughs> so that's part of serfdom, is that you are not yeah. supposed to leave. You you can't just say, you know, you can't technically just get up and say, I would like to <laughs> you know, work on this lord's land now. <laughs> right. But that he really isn't doing either. That he's just no. really kind of, it's it's a very... It's all very like short term, right? That, you know, long term, it's like, what's the, there's no like long term strategy. No, I mean, you do want to be, keep things kind of attractive, right? Right. Or at least like the, 
it's not it doesn't make sense to me why anybody is still in Lapvona in fact that like yes. it's that obviously people are dying but it seems like the people who aren't dying are all just staying which is actually pretty unrealistic for the post-plague era that we see right. that this is precisely the period where we see a lot of uh, peasants who are actively trying to either go to other lands where they might have better conditions or to move into the cities yes yeah uprooting themselves because you can do right. better yeah, you know, and okay. that, you know, there there are things that you can kind of get away with. I mean, so Barcelona, for example, you know, if you get to the city and are in the city for a year and a day, you're a citizen of Barcelona now. Okay. So, you cool. know, that's, which is a pretty, a pretty decent deal. Uh-huh. <laughs> so you do, so you kind of have that, right? And the, the peasants of Lapvona are, are kind of oddly inert, I would say, compared to the, the realities of the mid to late 14th century. Yeah, that's just it. There's a character in this book called Grigor, mm-hmm. who at the start of the book mutilates the gentleman in the stocks. And he spends the latter part of the book hanging out with Ina. And he's one of these guys who just yes. like, oh, she's got horses eyes now. And he's like, <laughs> oh, she's fine. an immortal witch. But uh, okay, easy come, easy go. You know, live and let live. She seems nice. <laughs> I've been single for a while. <laughs> Yeah, he's just like, I don't know, scratching his head. Because yeah, they have this like kind of like semi-romantic attachment. Yeah, I mean, I can't remember. She Does she suckle him as an adult or only as a baby? She suckles a lot of people in this book. She does suckle a lot of people. I can't remember if she actively... if he. I can't remember if he as an adult suckles in this book or not. Um, but, but, you know, they, they kind of enter into this sort of like domestic partnership. Uh, I think, you know, they... Yeah. They do have exchange, like a kiss on the cheek or something. Their relationship is sort of like oddly chaste. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Compared to what one might expect from this Yeah, book. yeah, yeah. And I want to reiterate for people listening to this, like, this book sounds like a mess, but it is legible. Oh, yes. Yeah, it's... There are a lot of threads, but it's actually, yeah. I feel like, a very... It's like, it is very, very coherent as yeah, a read. Yeah. Um, it's hard to describe. Yes. But it is and very much, And it sounds much, ridiculous yes. when you describe it. But it's about 300 yes. pages, you know. It's very tightly plotted. Like, it, it really works. Moves as a clip, yeah. As I said, if you can handle um, <laughs> the various things that we have provided content warnings for, yeah. Uh, yeah, I yeah. absolutely recommend it. It's a really interesting <laughs> read. And, like, stunning writing. Yeah, but when you're plucking also. things out of the air to talk about, it, it this sounds completely balmy yes <laughs> yes um and, and in that vein as well in terms of uh, plucking things out of the air i do want to also kind of note that we've uh, we've got a lot of self-flagellation <laughs> uh, especially at the beginning of the book that like jude right. like flagellates himself and then beats merrick and this is like intended as being sort of uh you know religiously kind of you know expiatory right uh very yeah. kind of similar to the the flagellant movements in the wake of the black death mm-hmm which I will note, I actually do find interesting as well, the extent to which there is, I think, a sense even within the book, right, that this is not this is not something that, like, even the people around them would necessarily be like, this seems cool and normal and fine. <laughs> <laughs> which I appreciate because that's also very much true of the flagellant movement, mm-hmm. that there are a lot of people who are basically like, 
who are these weird, these like weird guys who have like showed up in our city and are like bothering us? Yes. That including, you know, we we kind of get a really kind of interest, you know, kind of really interesting descriptions in Chronicles, which even then kind of like go into the like, ugh, they can't even just flagellate themselves. They also have to preach. Like, why can't they just shut up? <laughs> At least. <laughs> Um, so yeah, yeah, so I, uh, I kind of like appreciate that there is this sense that everybody's a little like, ugh. These guys. Get a load of these guys. <laughs> I, yeah, I remember reading something several years ago. I think it was Catherine of Siena. Was she also a flagellant? Or was she just always on the Pope's case? She was mostly, I think, on the Pope's case and also starved herself. Ah, that was it. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, she died at, oh, I think it was in her 30s, and uh, that probably had something to do with the fact that she decided that uh, it was a really good idea to try and subsist exclusively on the Eucharist. Ah, it's very small, very thin, not very nourishing. Yes. I mean, or an early version of the Adkins diet, if you accept the doctrine of transubstantiation, (laughs) but... (laughs) Okay. But yeah, no, that, that didn't turn out great for her. No, that's some David Blaine stuff. Yeah, and you know, and we and really, like we do get a lot of that in in mysticism, right? The kind of like emphasis on on like pain and suffering, mm-hmm. sometimes through things like fasting. We get a lot of kind of really interesting depictions of like people who have essentially what you could describe as basically like chronic illnesses, yes. uh, who very much kind of like lean into it as like mm-hmm. cool. This is sent to me from God. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Yeah, I guess you had that comfort back in the day, such as it was. Right, right. Or at least, at least some people, you know, went went that direction. Yeah. With it, and and on that note, I do like that this book includes a lot of characters who take religion seriously. Uh huh. With the caveat that there then ends up being, I would say, to some extent, this kind of weird, uh, from a modern perspective, at least, I would say, kind of class divide. Go on. In that the people who take religion seriously seem to be mostly the kind of impoverished, illiterate peasantry. Right. Whereas the elites very much seem to not, in fact, take religion particularly seriously. Right. Okay. Which feels very kind of like Marxist, like opiate of the masses. (laughs) And that comes back to what I mentioned earlier. Uh, This together with William's style of lordship. I think is why this text is not really about medieval times. Agreed. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's uh, it was written at the time it was. She says as much in an interview she did for Vogue, where she's asked, "It's the way we live that enforces these weird rules." Like she mentions gender roles. Mm-hmm. Okay, it's the way we live that enforces these rules. How does that, the interviewer says, how does that manifest in unequal societies where people like William hold the most power? She says, with William, I wanted to explore what it's like when the delusional person is in charge. We've experienced that a bit recently and we saw what happened and what is happening. I never Mm -hmm. intend to be political, but you can't help but be influenced by what's going on. Mm -hmm. So I think what she's getting at a lot of the time is the inability of those in charge to react when the wind is against them. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? So when this famine comes along, 
or when a pandemic comes along, the kind of panicked reaction of the people we've put in charge or who are in charge mm-hmm. of their own volition is kind of, uh, I don't know, um, batten down, uh, stiff up a lip, tighten your belts, pull yourself up mm-hmm. by your bootstraps, you know. Uh, yeah. It's just kind of, you guys can, can deal with it. See you later. We'll see you after this is done. Yeah, and and I also find it really interesting in terms of, I mean, I find it very interesting, right, that the interviewer asked the question from the perspective of what about in unequal societies with the right. implication that, like, this is an unequal society, the, you know, medieval Europe is, right. and, you know, the feudal structures, like, this is an unequal society with the mm-hmm. implication that are they saying that we live in an equal society? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> And she doesn't overtly say that, but I think in terms of like immediately bringing in this modern parallel, I think she is undermining that mm-hmm. this idea that like we have like progressed into an equal society now. Right. She's making the point that, you know, they'll pull up the drawbridge and mm-hmm. put the guards in post and wait for it to all die down when it comes down to it. Mm-hmm. And yeah. we we very much, you know, have witnessed, right, the kind of everyday, yeah. you know, cruelties of, of, you know, capitalist structures during a pandemic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or just in everyday life, but especially they were well, very Well, yes, in everyday life, but, you know, the, the pandemic very much kind of highlighting, right, yeah, so yeah. The, the kind of elements of that, um, yeah. the extent to which, you know, there really is this, like, basically, like, you know, we, we will kill your grandmother to make an extra $10. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Heightening the contradictions, uh, I think it's called. Right. So, right. you know, that that very much I think is I think is present. And yeah. I find that really interesting as well in that, you know, so on the one hand, I do usually get frustrated with the kind of uh, grim dark Middle Ages, right? Mm-hmm. And uh that is certainly, you know, a comment that I saw in some reviews. So, you know, that's this is kind of Game of Thrones medieval, right? That this is like unrelenting misery and cruelty and brutality, and that's what the medieval past is. Yeah. And on the one hand, that's a critique I have. But on the other hand, I kind of think that like, that's not actually something she thinks is exclusive to the Middle Ages. I think she just thinks that's what the world is like, always has been like, and always will be like. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. Which I kind of appreciate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, As a misanthrope, you must have a clearer perspective on that. um, um, Yeah. yeah. um, (laughs) The reason I don't like that vision of the Middle Ages tends to be because I find frustrating the claim Mm. that like, Back then, it was really bad, but now it's better. Oh, I and see. Yeah. Uh, right that we that we create these narratives of progress that we find comforting and that we find yes. satisfying. Yes, that I think are not useful in a lot of ways, and that I think are also in some ways kind of designed to like tell people, especially people who are marginalized and vulnerable in our own society, you know, whether for gender reasons or class structures or yeah. racial structures that, you know, we're being kind of told to like, shut the fuck up about it. Cause you used to be so much worse Yes. when the reality is a lot more complicated. Yeah. I don't exactly think she thinks that I think that this is said in the middle ages, but as I said, I don't think she actually thinks we've gotten better than this. No, no, no. She, I, I think that's, that's the point she's making. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I mean, I think you're supposed to say like, ah, oh, yes, this is familiar. Yeah. And what do you think of her choice to, well, if you like, I think Marek is the central character of the book, although Jude and William are big parts of it. What do you think of her choice to centre a disabled person? 
So I actually, that was something that I really liked and that is actually a good lead in to uh, wanting to talk a little for uh, the, uh, the Historia at Veritas about disability, actually kind of like in a kind of meta historiography way, actually kind of oh, talking about uh, disability studies in the Middle Ages as, yeah. as a growing field. Okay. Yeah, because I actually, so I really, really liked that she centered this character of Merak especially because that's that's not something that we we get very frequently, right? right? We have very few representations of disabled people in the medieval past. There's also even things that like I found really striking. So on the the episode that at the time of recording just came out on the film Catherine Called Birdie, right? I found really striking and kind of disturbing that actually the book has a disabled character and then that disability is removed from the uh, representation of the character in the film that that character oh. is not disabled okay in the movie how weird yeah right did they do the uh, to go on another digression but back to thomas harris didn't they do that for red dragon like the yes i believe so that guy is supposed to be deformed but i think they gave ray fines like a cleft palate right yeah and i <laughs> I guess I kind of get that sort of, at least from the perspective right. of like, it's another, you know, erasing disabled people is not a good solution, but also like the like trope of disability yeah. as being linked with like villainy is also not great. Yeah, yeah, there is that. <laughs> so I, that, yeah, so like that I kind of understand, but you know, this is like, this was like a perfect, like, like nice character. Yeah. This was like the main character's like best friend. Mm-hmm. You know, and like there's there was like no reason that I could right. see to like just like decide like this isn't a disabled character anymore. Other yeah, that's, than like that's rough. I don't feel like dealing with it. Yeah. So especially given that, like I really, really like that we are centering this disabled character. We also like have other representations, you know, that we have like Ina also as a central character who is blind. Right. Until the the horse's eyes, until <laughs> she gets hold of some horse's eyes. Also, I think I think when she breastfeeds, she can see, or something yes. like that. She has, yeah, yeah. So there's all this miraculous stuff going on with her. Yes. Yeah. Okay. And one of the things, and and I also really think in particular, it's important that we have these representations, both because I think you know having these representations are inherently good, mm -hmm. but also because you do sometimes see in terms of you know our myths about the medieval past that we still oft, like too often see the long debunked medieval people didn't care about their children narrative. Yes. Which in particular often shows up in the context of a assumption basically that there were not disabled people or at least disabled children in the Middle Ages because they would just be exposed essentially or killed at birth. Well, speaking about Moshefeg's view that human nature is eternal. People speak in the same way about people in the developing world today. Mm -hmm. That they have so many right. children and they don't care about right. so on. Of course it's not true. Right. Right. And we and we know that's not true. We know that's not true in the developing world today, and we know that's not true uh in the medieval past. That uh -huh. we know that there are, you know, accounts in a lot of different sources of families who put in a lot of kind of care and consideration for children who have various kinds of disabilities. Mm-hmm. Not that I would describe uh, Merrick as getting care exactly right. from his parental figure. No, I think he breaks a bucket and, yeah, Jude, like, splits his tongue on his teeth or something horrible like that. 
Right. But which, you, you know, know, is also probably, you know, I think, I think also, you know, not unrealistic. I mean, I believe actually, you know, today as well, like it is, um, I believe like disabled children are like likely often, or like, I think disproportionately likely to be victims of like, of child abuse. Yes, sadly. Not, not unrealistic, although of course, very disturbing. Yes, yes, true. But yeah, but so I really, really liked that choice. And so I do just kind of want to uh, to say a few words about the fact that, you know, this is is something that we can actually talk about and that it's a growing field. So in terms of just kind of giving giving credit to some of those people, it's a really new field that it's uh, there are some older works, but it's really like within the 21st century that we've seen this as a growing field within medieval studies. I, I recommend if you're interested in a kind of broad overview, Wendy Turner's remarks that she gave at a Medieval Academy roundtable. They are represented online. And so she kind of talks about this history, identifies, you know, a major turning point really being in, you know, 2008, which is not that long ago, when she and a number of other scholars uh, founded the Society for the Study of Disabilities in the Middle Ages. Okay. As I said, like 2008 is is quite late in a lot of ways for that sort of thing. It, you know, certainly is like well after gender studies, for example, right, is okay. a kind of, you know, big field in yeah. medieval studies. For sure. So that this, as I said, is a, is a kind of new field. And that, you know, we're seeing, I would say, a lot of kind of interesting elements in terms of how we study disability. Uh, so first of all, that people have really moved away from a kind of medical model of disability. Uh-huh. So that it used to be that basically it would be a lot of like, trying to identify what disabilities people had based on descriptions in, you know, variety of medieval texts and images. Trying to diagnose. Yeah, so trying to diagnose, and that includes both, uh, you know, physical and mental uh, disabilities. You know, there's a lot of, like, armchair psychologizing about, like, medieval saints in particular that I tend to, like, have, you know, I tend to think is, like, not useful. No. In terms of like this person is schizophrenic, it's like you don't know that. Right. <laughs> Based yeah. on, like these like texts that like this this person didn't even like write down this text themselves. Like this is like what her yeah. confessor wrote down. Like you don't. Yeah, know yeah. But instead, we have kind of an emphasis on social models or cultural models, right? So thinking about disability as something that is socially constructed and that is socially constructed differently in different settings, right? So that the idea of disability as something that's kind of constructed is different in medieval France than it is in, you know, the United States today. Okay. And also uh, really a lot of interest in uh, kind of religious ways of understanding disability. And in particular, the fact that, you know, there is this kind of element that certain kinds of disabilities and chronic illnesses often get kind of brought forward as like a kind of like redemptive suffering that is, uh, you know, sent by Christ, right? So that we, we have some of that element, but also have a lot of kind of like really like the relationship of, uh, disabled bodies to kind of religion and miracles is really striking and strange in a lot of ways. Sometimes right. it kind of shows up as uh, as disabilities being represented as something to be fixed. Yes. Which in particular we see in, you know, a lot of the representations that we have of disability come out of medieval miracle stories. Right. And a lot of those are, you know, you go and you pray to Saint so-and-so and Saint so-and-so, you know, takes away your disability. Okay, so throw aside your crutches or your limb grows back yeah. overnight and so on. Right. Which, of course, goes back to, you know, the New Testament, right? So, you know, Jesus spent a whole lot of time, you know, healing people, you know, curing people of their disabilities. Right. Like Michael Palin. Yeah, right, right. Life of Brian. He didn't want to be cured. (laughs) Couldn't you make me just a little bit lame? Uh (laughs) (laughs) 
but you know of course also kind of interesting right from the pers- like that like that bit in life of Brian actually is really interesting from a kind of like perspective of you know the the way people are talking about disability now and the way that like people who are disabled do not necessarily want to be kind of like fixed or cured and uh, that is a you know trope that is often considered to be kind of problematic that the ideal is to be simply like have your disability removed from you that a lot of disabled people have been and activists have been kind of pushing back against that oh yeah yeah and you see it in kind of other interesting ways too so that there's this uh, this fascinating story in the uh, the cantigas de santa maria which is this collection of miracles of the virgin mary and includes this whole story about uh so so merlin shows up <laughs> and uh merlin is like arguing with a rabbi because uh, you know like that's all obvi- you know merlin's obviously gotta like ar- you know fight the jews and this uh jewish child is born with his head on backwards as a symbol of jews uh backward lookingness and stubbornness what? okay <laughs> And then, like, Merlin, like, trots out the child and sort of, like, takes him around to preach the truth of Christianity. Yeah. But interestingly, like, the child is not, I don't think, ever, quote, cured. (laughs) That's just his deal. Uh, Okay. (laughs) That his head is on backwards. Interesting. But he's Christian, so it's fine. (laughs) Uh to kind of add on to that, I will note that also there is a really kind of rich and complex array of source material for talking about medieval disability, so that you might think from the absence of depictions of medieval disability in so many of our works of media that, you know, mm-hmm. disability is essentially doesn't exist with the exception of like, maybe there's like some guy who had a leg amputated or something. Right. But that in reality, you know, we have we have a lot of sources for talking about medieval disability. Uh, I will note that there actually is like a medieval disability source book, which is open access. If you're interested in like getting and I'll post links to that if you're interested in like getting a sense of what some of those sources look like. Mm -hmm. But just to kind of note that, you know, we have medical texts, we have religious texts that I've already talked about a little bit. Mm. We have a lot of literature, which includes representations of disabled people. We have legal statutes, we have court cases. And just to kind of mention another book in particular, which I found interesting, there is a scholar of Jewish history working mostly on uh, Northern Europe, Ephraim Shulham Steiner, who has this book uh, on the margins of a minority, leprosy, madness, and disability among the Jews of medieval Europe, which is very interesting in terms of kind of like, you know, thinking intersectionally about disability and the experiences of being both disabled and also part of this marginalized Jewish community. Yeah. But he works mostly with rabbinic responsa, which are a source that is, I would say, kind of so far within disability studies, not mined as much as I think it could be in part because like so little has been translated. Uh-huh. And most classically trained medievalists don't necessarily have, like have Hebrew. Right. In particular, it's like really obnoxious Hebrew. <laughs> it's like medieval Hebrew is annoying because... <laughs> It's not biblical Hebrew and it's not modern Hebrew and there's not really like a decent dictionary from medieval Hebrew. I see. And it's like kind of influenced with like, like has like influences from like Talmudic Aramaic. Like it's, mm-hmm. I've translated responsa and they're a pain in the neck to translate basically. <laughs> so you really need to like have like solid Hebrew to, uh, to get into the responsa. But there are a lot of kind of really interesting. Yeah things that and that come up in particular like really fascinating is that like there's a lot of responsa that talk in particular about what you do with disability in the context of marriage especially uh-huh. if that disability presents an impediment to sexual activity okay 
Okay. Which, you know, then technically means that, like, the marriage is supposed to be dissolved, but that ends up being yeah. treated really differently based on the gender of the person who's disabled, because there's then a lot of concern about if there's a disabled woman and she gets divorced, how is she going to take care of herself? Whereas, like, that presumption isn't there for men. <laughs> <laughs> like I said, bootstraps. Right. <laughs> so, yeah, like a lot of really interesting material there in terms of, you know, certainly kind of thinking about how people are, you know, perceiving disability as well as kind of to some extent getting, you know, a window onto, you know, what it actually was like and how society yeah. is either essentially kind of contributing to, uh, you know, somebody like contributing to disability being like a way that it makes it harder to move through the world versus like not doing that. Yeah. Well, interesting. So yeah, say a call for like, actually, like, maybe like, we should have more of these representations. And like, I in general, like, I'm always like, very much in favor of like, it's great, I think, to have more narratives that actually like center people, like people who are not, you know, cishet, able-bodied white Christian men. Right. Yeah. <laughs> or the people who we see centered in like, the vast majority of media about the medieval past. Absolutely. So. Yeah, yeah. No, it's interesting. Yeah, so with that, we can get into the Fabula Nostra, where we come up with a uh, piece of media inspired by this one. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Which could either, if we want to like talk about like a film adaptation of this or uh, other uh -huh. ideas that we might have. Yeah, I don't know if I'd want to see a, a film or a series of Lapvona. It could be, I don't know, there's something of the lighthouse about it, if you saw that one. Mm -hmm. Something of this. I was going to say, I very specifically do kind of want the A24 production of this. Right. Like, that's, like, that's, you know, that's, that's where this is going, I think. Yeah, that made sense to me. Especially if, you know, if you were to make an A24 Latvona, then I need to go, you need to go for, in my opinion, you need to go for uh, Willem Dafoe as Jude. I couldn't stop thinking about him throughout the whole thing. Oh, season. interesting. And, yeah, he's very wiry and could easily do Yeah unpleasant mm -hmm. yeah know? but as <laughs> stupidly as far as William goes I couldn't stop thinking of Lord Farquaad from Shrek <laughs> so <laughs> so I just think you'd have to go with John Lithgow for Lord William and he also has that kind of lightness and madness and bonhomie mm -hmm. about him that William has but I don't know I I think it's it's found its form as a 300-page novel. They are adapting mm -hmm. other of Moshfeg's books into films, and we'll see how that goes Yeah. at the moment. Maybe a graphic novel would work? I Yeah, I do. Oh, yeah. Yeah, um, <laughs> but it could be, again, It's <laughs> it's got to be read to be believed, I think. Right, yeah, I think certainly, yeah, the, the trouble with thinking about either, like, a film or graphic novel adaptation yeah. is the element of a, do we really want to see this? <laughs> um, sure, what do you think? But, I mean, but certainly, you know, there, I mean, there's an audience for that. There are a lot of people who like, you know, grotesque body horror movies. Yeah, 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 true. Which I sometimes do when done well, I... Uh, yeah. it, it's not an immediate no for me, at least, essentially. <laughs> and yeah, no, I was uh, I was kind of thinking about, like, yeah, casting for this as well. I, I went younger, so I was actually thinking of uh, Joaquin Phoenix at his most unpleasant. Oh, yeah. As Jude. Uh -huh. And uh, Benedict Cumberbatch as William. Oh, okay. Okay, I didn't think of him as that good looking, but... Uh... <laughs> 
Yeah, he can. I play so Benedict, It's just that Benedict Cumberbatch is like eerie, also. Oh yeah, yeah, true. And also, certainly, like I feel like he can play like unpleasant. Absolutely, he can. Yeah. Many people find him very good looking, but he's also simultaneously kind of very off-putting. Yeah, a sharp face. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, yeah, so that's uh, so that was where I was coming from. Recently, actually, have have seen a couple of things with uh, with Erin Kellyman, who uh, you know is is a younger actress, but Agatha is supposed to be you know younger significantly yeah. than Jude. She's and she's a redhead, so you know what's she in. She is uh, Winifred in The Green Knight. And ah. also, I don't know if you have seen the Willow TV show. No, I haven't. Okay, so she, and she's, uh, so yeah, she's like a main character in the Willow okay. TV show, which yeah, uh, is, yeah. is the episode that will be coming out, I believe, right before this one. That was my favorite bit of uh, The Green Knight. It's just when it cut to, I think the title card was An Evening with St. Winifred or something. Me and my yes. buddy just burst out laughing. It was such a funny subtitle. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, no, that was that was that was I think actually also yeah definitely my my favorite part of Green Knight. I mean, I yeah. I always love like another thing that I you know another reason that I really like do like this book is I uh-huh. feel like there are insufficient amount there's there's not enough work about the medieval past that is grappling with like the weirdness of medieval saints. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which I think is really like really something that like the medieval past has to offer for weird yeah. movies being made in the 21st century and that sure. like that field has not been sufficiently mined. And so <laughs> I think that like the Ina stuff I think is like brilliant from that perspective. Yeah. Yeah, 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 it's definitely of its time. Very good. Yeah. <laughs> I don't feel like I have an ideal, actually, for Ina. I feel like I can't come up with, like, a person. Oof. Like, cause all, I feel like all of the older actresses I can think of are the ones who are, like, really actually, like, gorgeous. And yes. I feel like that's not the right vibe. No, no, maybe. Have you seen Barbarian? I haven't, but, uh, okay. yeah, is there is there, like, the older, is there, like, an older woman in that? Uh... I, won't, I won't say anything else. Okay. I refuse. <laughs> okay. But yeah, uh, I, I I have heard enough that I know one uh, reference that you are presumably <laughs> right. one connection uh, that you are uh, presumably making with Barbarian. Yes. Can't recommend it enough. But yeah, so so I'm not yes, yeah, so I didn't come up with a casting either for Ina because I couldn't think of any like not super sex like like Helen Mirren is way too sexy for Ina. <laughs> like <laughs> Yeah, I don't think that's gonna happen. And I also could, didn't come up with casting for Merrick because like I think we should have both like a young actor and a disabled actor and you yeah. know, I don't you know, I think they're gonna have to like do a search for that if they were to make this. Yeah, yeah, you gotta. Otherwise, what the hell else are you going to do? Like, have, like, fucking Eddie Redmayne do it? Like, please, please no. Please no. Don't do that. If anybody's making this movie, please don't put Eddie Redmayne in it. Good call. And I will also, like, I feel like I've actually said this on this podcast before, but I will also just, like, kind of even, like, put in one other other plug for something that I think could make an interesting film adaptation. Go on. Which is that, you know, in terms of, like, again, like, centering disabled narratives is that there's actually this uh, really interesting micro-history called A Poisoned Past by Stephen Bednarski. Okay. It's this woman that we have a lot of information about because her late husband's brother accused her of poisoning the husband. Okay. <laughs> yeah, so so her husband died suddenly. Yeah, and the husband's brother said like you you know you poisoned your husband. Mhm. As far as we can tell, you know she she seems to have been exonerated uh ended yeah. up going on, you know, 
married somebody else. It seems like probably the whole thing was basically a kind of attempt to like cheat her out of any money that was owed to her. Mm-hmm. The brother seems like the the husband's brother actually seems like a real fucking piece of work. <laughs> But one of the other things that comes up in the context of this, and so I kind of talked about this when I taught it in my medieval law class this semester, is that she has what is like probably epilepsy. Okay. Which is presented as like uh, making it impossible for her and her husband to have sex. And there's actually a physician that says like, well, I don't think she poisoned her husband, but I think he uh, he died basically out of, because of like blue balls because his wife <laughs> wouldn't have sex with him. Uh, <laughs> Uh, it's always a woman's fault yep but uh yeah so i i think that would also like that's another like narrative that i think like would make a a fascinating film in terms of again like telling more different stories yeah i think i really actually do want like the a24 production of lepona yeah fair call good call good call i hadn't thought of it so now we can do the estimatio or uh, rating section where we rate this work on a scale from one to five based on whatever subjective criteria we see fit. Why don't you go first? Because I am uh, thinking about my rating. Still, okay. I think. Like I said, I got heavily into fiction at the beginning of, what was it? The end of summer last year. And I read mm-hmm. several books and I think of it as having, the books I read at the time as having three tiers. Mm-hmm. So uh, at the top of that pile from last year, I would put uh, A Gentleman in Moscow and Piranesi, mm. which both swept me away. And Lapvona is... Oh, I loved is... Piranesi. Oh, my God. Uh, it's just, it transported me. The other day, I listened to the yeah. audiobook in a day. Mm. I just adore it. Yeah, Piranesi people. Get on it. Lapvona was in the second tier. So mm. that's kind of like... Four out of five? hmm Yeah. I guess it's 300 pages. I read it in a very short time. It kept me interested. There's a lot of off-putting stuff in there. But if you can stomach it, it's um, occasionally very funny. And it has a lot to say about uh, human nature, and especially during the last few years we've had. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think I'm giving it, I think I'm going to settle on the very obnoxious uh, 3.75, which is basically like a four with a few, which like, like for very similar reasons, I think like I, I wouldn't say this is like quite up there as like one of my favorite books that I read last year, but it definitely is, is up there for me. And it's one of those that like, for better or worse, uh, really sticks with you. Uh, (laughs) Sometimes that is for worse, but yeah. Like, it's, it's, it's bizarre to me. I hadn't put in my notes about Ina eating the thumb, but goddamn, that right. stayed with me. Yep. No, but just like, it's, you know, those books that, uh, so I don't know if you listen to uh, the podcast Reading Glasses. No, I don't. I really enjoy it. And it's like, kind of like, it like gives some book recommendations, but a lot of it is just like about like reading and like your like and like life as a reader. Yeah. So you actually might find it fun, like as you're kind cool. of getting more into, uh, into fiction. Yeah. But one of the things that uh, one of the kind of terms that I feel like they've used is they've uh, they've talked about uh, a a book hangover, right? Which they sort of use that like you know you you've kind of like finished this book and like the book is still like lingering and it's kind of like in your head and you like can't get rid of it. Yeah. And this is one of those books that uh, yeah. you know is sort of like it's you like you know put it down and as I said sometimes for better sometimes for worse like you really yeah. can't it like you can't stop thinking about it. Not going away. 
But yeah, so so basically, yeah, I would say, but you know, also extremely disturbing. Yes. I'd give it, yeah, about about a like four to four point two five in terms <laughs> of like a book, and like shaving off a few points uh, from the perspective of like, you know. I still have like yeah. a little bit of the like, you know, from the perspective of this podcast of like, if you're going to set a book in the Middle Ages, like you could do research. You could do a little. Doesn't have to be potatoes. Right. Like, yeah, you don't have to have potatoes. Like, but as I said, I, I feel like I kind of like came around to some extent on like, to some extent yeah. being like, okay, this is very like grim, dark, medieval. And like, I'm sick of that trope to being like, uh-huh. It doesn't bother me as much because, as I said, I think I don't. I don't think she thinks that that's a contrast between the medieval era and the modern era. I think she no. thinks that's just what the world is like, and I kind Absolutely. of like that better. Yeah, yeah, yeah. True that. So, Ben, thank you so much for coming no, on and discussing you. this book and actually recommending this book to me. I don't know that I necessarily would have actually picked it up uh, without your your suggestion that we cover it for the podcast. Okay. And I'm very glad that I did end up reading it. So, thank you. No, no, you. Uh, it's it's, it's uh, nice to do a book. Yeah. Are there places where the listeners can find you on the internet? I've quit almost everything. I'm I'm still on Letterboxd, where I log and review movies. My name there is Ben Paul, so it should be pretty easy to find. And I've got a house to rent on Airbnb, but I'm not going to give you the link for that. <laughs> <laughs> it's nice. It's in Portugal. You know, if you can find me, good on you. <laughs> Sounds um, very nice. Yeah, yeah. It's good. So if you have enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe in your preferred podcatcher app and rate and review on Apple Podcasts in particular. I'll read new five-star reviews in future episodes. Please also follow the podcast on Twitter at MediaEvilPod and join our Facebook group. And you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Sarah F. Decker. All that, of course, with the caveat that, like, who knows if a month from now when this episode comes out of Twitter will still exist. But, you know, <laughs> we see, we'll see. And if you have any questions or suggestions, I'd love to hear from you via email at media.evilpod at gmail.com. So Ben, thank you again. Thank you. And thank you all for listening to Media Evil. Bye.